Okay, so if you've just joined us, we're in the middle of a teaching series entitled Let the Light In, Practices of Undivided Devotion. The purpose of this series is to open up the windows. That was better than week one. It was better than week one. And we've been singing that most weeks. We'll continue to sing it because that's what this series is about. How do we open up the windows and let the light in? And the answer is by pursuing purity. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. So purity in heart creates clarity in sight. And then Jesus, a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount says, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Purity of heart creates clarity of sight. When you can see clearly, your whole body's full of light. And when you are full of light, shining like a star in the universe, you're gonna transform your environments. You're gonna bring light into the darkness. So the key, thank you, Kath. So the key question for the series is how do we become pure in heart? What does undivided devotion to Jesus look like? And it looks like entering into the minefield, the battleground of spiritual formation. Why do we call it a battleground? Well, let me break it to you that your soul has enemies. Your soul has some friends too, that's good news. But your soul has some enemies, enemies that do not want you to be formed into the likeness of Christ. And the language that the New Testament uses to describe this struggle and to name these enemies is the world, the flesh and the devil. The world, the systems, the narratives, the cultural currents, the principalities that surround us, the flesh, our disordered desires, our appetites that get misdirected. And when we have misdirected desires, we live misdirected lives. And then finally, the devil whispering lies constantly over us. And then we begin to live into those lies. So we named um, this framework that John Mark Combe has helpfully provided. This is like a modern reworking of the world, the flesh, the devil. He basically says it starts with these lies of the enemy, deceitful ideas, tap into disordered desires that get normalised in a sinful society. So deceitful ideas tap into disordered desires that get normalised in a sinful society. It leads to darkness within and darkness all around. What does that darkness look like? Well, we named the, the work of this fourth century monk, Evagrius Ponticus, who developed this framework that then got refined into the seven deadly sins. If you're visiting and you're thinking, gosh, they've gone after the seven deadly sins. Absolutely right. We've jumped right in there. Um, the seven deadly sins. This is an articulation of the darkness that can grab hold of us within and the darkness that surrounds us. Envy. Wrath, slothfulness, greed, and gluttony, and lust. We put those two together and pride. Now, soon after this framework was developed, the church began to name what living in the light looked like. The seven virtues that transformation into the likeness of Christ looks like. And they named these seven virtues, kindness, patience, diligence, generosity, um, temperance and chastity. We fuse together um, self-control and humility. How do we journey from the darkness into the light? And the answer is deliverance. And what does deliverance look like? This is just a recap, by the way. I'm gonna get going with today's sermon in a moment. Um, what does deliverance look like? It looks like blood, sweat and tears. The blood of Jesus, 
the tears of repentance and the hard work of spiritual formation. So how do we get free? What does liberation look like? The practices, which we're zooming in on in the series, the practices don't get you free. Please don't practice these spiritual disciplines thinking they will liberate you. They will not liberate you. The blood of Jesus will liberate you and set you free. And with that newfound freedom, we practice these disciplines. And as we practice them again and again and again, they become second nature to us. And our second nature becomes the nature of Christ. The blood of Jesus liberates you. And with your newfound freedom, we practice these disciplines and we become like Jesus, shining like stars in the universe. And today, this morning, we're zooming in on wrath. The journey from wrath to patience. It's the blood of Jesus that liberates us. And how do we become more patient, long-suffering? We're going to talk about the practice of forgiveness. So are you ready to talk about anger? No, no one's ready to talk about anger, but we're going to talk about anger, bitterness, resentment, hatred in your heart. We're diving into the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus said this, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to brother or sister, raka, incredibly rude word, in the ancient world, empty-headed, right? I've heard you say a lot worse. Just hanging out in the cafe, I've heard you say a lot worse than Raka, right? Anyone who says Raka will be answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, B.A. Barakas would be in big trouble. That's a gag that went straight overhead. Don't worry about that, Google it afterwards. You fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Let me try and unpack what Jesus is saying here. First thing to notice is this formula that repeats itself through the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, Jesus is pointing backwards to the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments and the other commandments in the, the Torah. You've heard that it was said, but now I tell you, I'm intensifying the Mosaic law. What was the Mosaic law trying to do? It was trying to control external behaviour. In other words, do not murder because murder will lead to judgment. But Jesus says, we're going one step further. This is the way of the kingdom. I'm not just concerned with external behaviour. I'm concerned with the motives in your heart. We're going after transformation of the heart. That's what's going to bring about transformation in behaviour. And there was a prophecy that this would take place. This is from Jeremiah. And the prophecy was basically the law wouldn't just be written into your mind and into your memory. It would be written into your hearts. It would be in your imagination. You'd be transformed from the inside out. Jesus is going after the heart. He cares about your behaviour. He deeply cares about the motives of your heart. So he talks about anger. Greek word here is orgizomenos. Now in the Greek language, there's a number of words for anger. There is the word thumos, which is anger that flares up quickly and dies down pretty quickly. When you stub your toe, you feel angry. It rises within you. You drop the F-bomb. Ah, flip. Some of you use different language. I'm aware of that. Right, It rises up, it dies down pretty quickly. That's not the anger Jesus is talking about. He's talking about orgasmos, which is anger that brews over time. 
and you begin to nurture it. It's a present participle. So you could translate it, whoever is remaining angry, whoever is nursing a grudge, whoever is nurturing bitterness, right? Anyone know what this kind of anger looks and feels like? No one's nodding, but I know you know. We're human in our brokenness. You know, right? You've been there. Here would be some signs that there's orgasmos within you. When you begin to role play a conversation, with someone you're angry with, an enemy. This isn't a conversation you're actually going to have because that would require some courage. So what you do <laughs> is you just imagine, do you know what I would say? I'd do it in a public place. I'd say this and then I'd say that. I'd publicly humiliate them. I'd expose this to tear them to pieces. And when they were weeping and left in a heap on the ground, my work would be done. Right? Know that kind of situation. Some of you looking fairly surprised. Maybe there's some stuff going on within me. I really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed that. That would be one scenario. Another scenario is someone that's really hurt you and you've been nurturing this bitterness over a significant period of time. Maybe an ex-girlfriend, boyfriend, someone that really let you down in the workplace. And then you hear news that they're not doing so well. And it brings you a bit of joy. Oh, my ex-girlfriend is not very happy since we broke up and she dumped me. Oh, that, oh, she's been struggling, has she? That's heartbreaking to hear. Heartbreak. My heart goes out to her. That since we broke up and she broke my heart, she's been str struggling with mental health. Oh, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear it, right? We can joke about this stuff. But the reason I'm trying to joke about it is to normalise it because you know what it feels like and I know what it feels like. When bitterness grows in your heart and someone's ill fortune brings you to, brings some level of delight. That is the anger that Jesus is going after, orgasmos. Paul says this, in your anger, orgasmos, do not sin. In fact, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Like don't let it stir in your being even for a night because it will give the devil a foothold. Jesus goes stronger. It will throw you into the dangers of the fires of hell. Strong language. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's basically naming cause and effect, starting with the Mosaic law. Murder will lead to judgment. According to the Mosaic law, that judgment will be punishment of death. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But murder isn't just the cause, it's also an effect. So Jesus says, well, murder actually begins with orgasmos in your heart. If you nurture this bitterness, if you feed it, that's what leads to the kind of violence that leads to murder. And murder will lead to judgment and judgment will lead to hell. Anyone who is orgasmos with a brother or sister over a period of time will be in danger of the fire of hell. Summary is orgasmos over time will lead to hell. Now you ask any family member who's lost a brother, sister, child to knife crime, they will say that kind of bitterness, it creates hell on earth. 
Now, when we talk about hell, more often than not, we think of a future destination for those who reject God. They don't want to live in eternity in His presence. They don't want His rule and reign. And when you reject God, you live without His rule and reign. So yes, there's a sense in which hell is a future destination. But Jesus is talking about a present reality. And those listening to Jesus, hearing the language of Gehenna, the word that's used throughout the New Testament for hell, they're thinking primarily of a present reality, hell on earth. Now, let me give you two pictures that would have come to mind for those listening to Jesus preach this Sermon on the Mount. Firstly, they would think of this valley. This is Gehenna. Just to let you know, Gehenna is an actual place. It's a valley on the south side of the city of Jerusalem. They didn't have in the first century sophisticated sanitation systems. So where would they take the dump, the rubbish, the stuff that didn't belong in the city? The answer is they'd take it to the south side of the city. It'd be thrown over the wall into the valley where there would be a worm that night and day devours the trash. And there would be a fire burning night and day that consumes the rubbish. So have in your mindset anything that doesn't belong in the city, Jerusalem, city of Shalom, city of peace and wellness, the city where people can flourish. Anything that doesn't belong, it's thrown outside of the city to burn and be devoured. That's the first picture that would have come to mind for those listening to Jesus teach. The second picture that would have come to mind is the history of this valley in the Old Testament. They knew the stories of the Old Testament inside out. So here's a couple of the stories, a couple of the scriptures that perhaps would have come to mind. This is the story of one of the kings who burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, in other words, Gehenna, and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Here's another text, Jeremiah 19, God speaking to Jeremiah. He says, go out to the valley of Gehenna, the south side of the city. There proclaim the words. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I'm going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. For they've forsaken me and made this place a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal, one of the gods of the surrounding nations, to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. In other words, human sacrifice. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. So beware... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place Topheth or the Valley of Gehenna, but the Valley of Slaughter, right? So when they hear the language of Gehenna, they're thinking rubbish, rubbish dump outside the city and they're thinking a place of darkness and idolatry and human suffering where they can hear the cries of the innocent, right? That's what comes to mind. 
Now, the problem is most of us, when we hear the language of hell, we have a, a story that for some of us was embedded for, from quite a young age. And the story goes something like this. We live on earth and at the end of our lives, there's two destinations on offer. Eternity with Jesus in heaven or eternity in hell. In other words, two destinations, depending on how you respond to Jesus. Now, there's some problems with this approach, this standard story. Here's the problem, is that it treats heaven and hell as counterparts. So if you do a biblical word search, heaven and hell, how many verses in Scripture do you find both of these words together? And the answer is (coughs) none, none. You'll never see heaven and hell side by side in Scripture. They are not counterparts. If you do a word search for heaven and earth, you'll see 194, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the? Good reading. It will always be the same. Thus the? Were completed in their vast array. This is the account of the? We won't do all 194, don't worry. But it goes all the way through to Revelation 21 and 22, which is the story of the reconciliation of heaven and earth. And then in the middle of the story, you have Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection. Through His blood, He's brought about a reconciliation between, always the same, heaven and earth. This is the story of heaven and earth, right? So it's not that there's no truths in this story. There's just some major problems with it. This is the gospel story. The story of the New Testament is that when the kingdom of God breaks in, when heaven and earth become one, which is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven, what happens is the darkness of hell is driven out. And when Christ returns, He will finish what He started. Heaven and earth will be fully reconciled. The new Jerusalem will come down and heaven will be, uh, hell will be flushed from the face of the earth. This is the story of the New Testament. And some of us have just been living in a distorted story. Jesus wants to push back darkness. He wants us as his followers to open up the windows and let the light in. And when we're filled with light, we become agents of bringing light to the surrounding culture. This is why Joshua Ryan Taylor, in his book, brilliant book called The Skeletons in God's Closet, he says this, Hell gains entrance into God's good world through us. We are the agents of destruction, the architects of demolition. And God is not the architect of hell, the creator of its soul-destroying power. We are. We unleash its wildfire flame into God's good world. What he's trying to say, and we know this to be true, is that Purity, in other words, holiness, purity of heart brings about justice in the surrounding culture. When you're pure of heart, you see God. Clarity of sight means your whole body's full of light and then you bring light into the darkness. Purity matters because purity leads to justice. But this is also true that impurity leads to injustice, right? Impurity leads to Injustice. These little flames within the human heart, these flames of lust, right, explain the sex industry, 
and the human trafficking and all the evil that's a part of that. It's a little flame of greed here that creates massive inequality and chronic injustice, right? It's the little flame of orgasmos, just a tiny bit of bitterness that creates systems of oppression and violence, right? It starts in the human heart. And Jesus is trying to connect the two. The problem is we live in an age where we disconnect the two. We care passionately about justice. We want to flush out misogyny. We want to flush out systemic racism. We want to flush out mindsets and practices that harm creation. Like we want to make poverty history. We care about justice but we don't really talk about holiness or purity. In fact, we have a mindset like a little bit of lust, like the sex industry is evil and the trafficking that goes with it, evil and slavery that goes with it, evil, but a little of casual porn. Nah, that doesn't harm anyone. Jesus says, well, it creates hell on earth and it starts in here. A little bit of bitterness, a little bit of August ominous nah, doesn't harm anyone. And Jesus says, yeah, it does. It creates hell on earth. And it is time to wake up. What's the remedy? The remedy is the cross. Where August ominous and lust and greed, all of these sins, as we bring them to the cross, his blood washes us clean, whiter than the snow. He separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. We are completely liberated, forgiven, set free. But the cross has more than enough power, right, than for just the individual. There's enough power to bring about the reconciliation of heaven and earth. It purifies individuals, but it purifies structures too. Now, if we can just have the slides on the screen. I, I want to look at what happens when we confess our sins. Now, this next slide took me about half an hour. So I want you to stare at the screen and notice <laughs> the power of confession. I just want to give those downstairs a moment. On the live stream, you're going to need to see the screen. Okay, here we go. Look, look at what happens when we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There we go. I was hoping for way more than that. We're just going to watch it again. That took me half an hour. Half an hour. I was paid for that half hour. And it, time well spent. Time well spent. So let's, when we pursue purity, when our sins are washed away and the light fills us from the inside out, we become agents of bringing justice in the surrounding culture. There we go. That was the response I was hoping for. That was the response. We can go straight into ministry now. Um, right? It's these little flames that Jesus says, I actually care about internal motives. The Mosaic law was just about external behaviour. But I want you to know that the motives lead to the external behaviour. I care about the external stuff, but I'm going after transformation of the heart. And where you find any orgasmos, I'm going after it. And I'm calling you to purity. Because only when you pursue purity can you see God and clarity of sight creates a purity of heart. And then we get to participate in all that God is doing. So let me name then what happens when the blood of Jesus washes away orgasmos. All that bitterness that you've held on to, hatred towards a brother or sister. What happens? You're free. You're suddenly free. 
And what do you do with that freedom? You pursue Christ-likeness, becoming patient, long-suffering. And what's the practice that's going to help you in that journey? And the answer is forgiveness. So let's listen to what Jesus says again in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, now the context is someone, perhaps travelling hours, to bring an offering to the temple in Jerusalem. This is Jesus engaging in some banter, by the way. It says, if you're offering a gift at the altar and there that you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is hyperbole. This is Jesus being funny. I know we're not laughing, but it's kind of funny. He's basically saying, don't offer the gift. You've you've brought it. You've travelled with it for maybe an hour, a couple of hours. I want you to leave it travel back two hours, reconcile, travel back two hours, bring the gift, go back two hours. I'd rather that six hours of travel than you bringing your gift with bitterness in your heart, right? Why does he say that? Well, let's listen to a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, prepare yourself, this is painful, but... If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. If there's orgazomenos in your heart and you come to bring a gift, Jesus says, like, leave the gift because there's a massive barrier between you and me right now and it's your hatred towards someone made in my image. Leave the gift, go and be reconciled, come back and then bring your offering of worship. See, we don't realise that sometimes we come to church, but if there's anger, resentment, bitterness in your heart, there is a barrier between you and God. And there's a barrier between you and His presence. And there's a barrier between you and His purposes because His purposes are done in His presence. And this is why Jesus is saying, you need to deal with orgzomenos. Luke 6, do not judge and you will not be judged. This is what Augustomenos does in our lives. We spend so much time judging people and social media just multiplies this. Idiot, what a complete moron. And, and, and you just, is it just me? Some of you are like, who is this guy? How is he allowed in ministry? Sometimes I ask myself the question, right? And you just stand in judgment. Do not condemn you will not be condemned. And we just, when you've got bitterness in your heart, you spend your time condemning people, right? Jesus is basically saying, if you judge, you will be judged. And if you condemn, you will be condemned, right? But forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here's the message. Forgiveness creates the pathway to abundance, right? Forgiveness creates the pathway to abundance. So let me close with this story of Corrie ten Boom. I'm sure many of you will have heard of her story, maybe read her famous book, The Hiding Place. Um, She was imprisoned in the Second World War for rescuing and hiding Jews in her home in Holland. 
Um, she ended up being in prison, taken to Ravensbrück um, concentration camp, where she was released on the 31st of December 1944, three days before her release, her beloved sister Betsy died in the concentration camp. And after the war, she started traveling around Europe with a message that the only way to healing is through forgiveness. There will be no healing without forgiveness flowing towards our brothers and sisters. But that message was tested because in 1947, she was preaching in a church in Germany and she noticed at the back of the room, one of the prison guards that had abused her in the concentration camp was present. And at the end of her preach, this man walked towards her. Now imagine the adrenaline rush of that moment. You're preaching a message of forgiveness and then you see someone who's caused you so much trauma. Your beloved sister passed away because of the abuse in the concentration camp. What do you do in a moment like that? Well, this is her account from her book, The Hiding Place. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I'd just spoken. It was 1947 and I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. His hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. 
the current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Like what happens in this moment of forgiveness, right? The answer is we open up the windows and we let the light in. Right? When there is bitterness, resentment, orgasmos in your heart, it will create hell on earth. And when you pursue the path of forgiveness, you open up the windows, you let the light in. 